Welcome, church family. My name is Pastor Ross. I'm one of the administrative pastors here at Allegheny Center Alliance Church. And I just want to say, each of those baby pictures were so beautiful. I just heard all the awes in the background, and um, it, it quickly allowed me to remember my children and how I spent the first few months trying to teach my children how to walk. Then I spent the following, following years telling them to sit down and be quiet. So may the Lord bless you on your journey with your children. So as a church, we have been studying the minor prophets, or as Rock put it last week, the not so minor prophets. They are considered minor only because of their size and not, a, not because of their significance. But this week, what we're going to focus on is another prophet whose story precedes the minor and the major prophets. This man is Moses. Now, in the New Testament, there are a couple of scriptures that state Moses and the prophets. And that led some people to question if Moses was truly a prophet. But make no mistake, Moses was a prophet. And when compared to the other prophets in the Pentateuch, he is considered one of the greatest. Which brings us to our scripture reading found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting with verse number 4, and it reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your head, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The title of today's sermon is The Steps for cultural transformation. Let us all pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity to share your words. And Lord, I ask that before I speak another word that you forgive me of any sin that I may have committed that will pre prevent me from doing what you have called me to do. And God, I ask that during this time, your Holy Spirit move throughout each and every pew and open the hearts and mind of your people so that they can receive your word. God, we thank you so much for this opportunity to hear manna from heaven. We ask that everything that I say and do be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. And as we dive into God's word together, may the Lord be with you. <clears throat> so let's set the scene. So the people of Israel had just been delivered from Egypt. Here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, they, had, they were between Egypt and Canaan, which is the promised land. Now the Ten Commandments had already been given by Moses from God, and now Moses prepared the people of Israel to enter into Canaan, which again is the promised land. Now you have to realize, see, Canaan was an amalgamation of several cultures. And as a result, the indigenous people worshipped many gods. Now the people of Canaan were said to be wicked and idolatrous. And we can understand why. Because since they served so many gods, they did not have a standard of holiness. So in this chapter, Moses prepared the Israelites to enter into Canaan by instructing them to not forget where they came from and who brought them out of bondage. So he tells them three things. First, God has delivered you from the hand of the enemy. 
Number two, not only did God deliver you, but he gave you a promise. And third, but as you walk in God's promise, don't take his blessings for granted by being disobedient and losing your faith. Because if you do, you'll end up conforming to the wicked and idolatrous culture that you are in. So in our scripture reading, Moses began to lay out instructions on how not to conform to their culture. And he started off with a one important reminder. He said, the Lord your God is one. See, the people in Canaan had worshipped various gods for over 500 years. And from past experience, Moses understood something that we should never forget. That the foundation of all godly disobedience is a biblical understanding of who God is, not who we want him to be. See, our God is infinitely and eternally perfect. He's self-existent and self-sufficient. And there's nothing that we can do to either increase God and there's nothing that we can do to decrease God. See, our understanding of who God is helps set the standard for our obedience and it shapes our response to this culture. And without a biblical understanding of God, we have the tendency to use cultural norms to define our relationship with him. See, today's culture would have us accept things that are contrary to God's word, such as one can have a relationship with God without going through Jesus Christ. They'll also have you believe that one can love Jesus, but not love the church. We also hear things that, things like, you know what, my faith is important to me, but I don't need to go to church. And there are people who are atheists and agnostic, which will say, I don't believe in Jesus, but I'm spiritual. Now see, really, when you, when you read God's word, that doesn't even make sense. Because God's word indicates that only those who are born again can be spiritual. And if you're not born again, you're not spiritual, but Paul says that you are dead to sin. So my response is, you're not spiritual because you lack the Holy Spirit. And no one, and we also, we also have to let them know that no, all roads do not lead to God. When grace and truth, with grace and truth, what we have to remind them is that the God you've created is different than the God that we serve. See, my God is my heavenly father. And, and my God sent his son to take away our sins. And my God sent a comforter in the form of the Holy Spirit to give me power, to give me everlasting life, to help me be one with the Father. And my God lives. So we have to share with the biblical truth of who God is with those that don't understand. Because without a biblical understanding of the only true and wise God, we interpret scripture through the lens of culture instead of interpreting culture through the lens of God. And the only thing that arms us against idolatry is knowing who God is. Otherwise, we'll look for things and people outside of God to satisfy us. And since they'll never bring us um, satisfaction, we default in making, and we default in wanting more and more stuff with the expectation that it will one day bring us satisfaction. See, that's why it's important for us to understand that the quest for happiness is usually a craving for holiness. 
Why? Because the only thing that will satisfy our soul is the presence of God's Holy Spirit. Therefore, as we, as we balance the cultural acceptable norms with the eternally perfect, self-existent, and self-sufficient God, we quickly realize that nothing that compares to God can satisfy us. So when I compare God to pornography, God to um, sex outside of marriage, God to my job, to drug and alcohol, to money, to gambling, to binge watching, to shopping, or even God to social media, it's easy for me to conclude that my God is bigger and more powerful than all these things and all these things put together. And none of those things will bring us happiness. As a matter of fact, these things will eventually make you miserable. There is nothing outside of God that could bring everlasting joy and you begin a downward spiral when you put your trust in things that are outside of God just to find out that they are going to make your matters worse. Saints, that's why it's so important for us to stop looking for happiness in the same place you lost it. See, if you lose, if you lose money by gambling, more gambling won't make you happy. If you lose your happiness in your love life, you jumping out of bed and sleeping with someone else will not bring you happiness. See, the only thing that can bring happiness is the unconditional love of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, why was it so important for Moses to begin with the foundation of a biblical understanding of who God is before he told them how to transform their culture. And the reason is because a biblical understanding of God helps us pursue the God who is instead of the God we want. And our culture defines God by their desires, but God declares himself by his revelation. See, once we understand who God is, then we can do what Moses said in verse number five, which is to love God with all our heart, our soul, and our might. And once love for God, and, and see, our love for God stems from our knowledge and our relationship with him. So in order for me to increase my knowledge and relationship with him, I must read his word. I must talk to him. I must listen to him. And ultimately, I must obey him. And this intimate time with him moves my knowledge and relationship with him from just a God to my God. And then we, and, and that's why it's so important for us to remember that we believe God from what we've read, but we grow to love God from our relationship with him. That's why it's so important that we develop intimacy with the Father. Because the more I get to know him, the more he reveals himself to me. And the more he reveals himself to me, the more that I love him. See, verses 4 and 5 provided instructions on how to resist conforming to a wicked and perverse culture. However, because of God's love for mankind, he, doesn't, he, he does not stop at asking us to not conform. He's just as interested in us transforming our culture. So again, God's people are responsible for understanding who God is and loving him with all of our soul and with all of our strength. But we're also responsible for using that knowledge and that love to help transform our families and our culture. 
See, in verses 7 through 9, he told the people of Israel, the commandments that I taught you, get them inside of you, and then get them inside your children. Talk about them whenever, wherever you are, sitting at home or walking in the street. Talk about them from the time you get up in the morning to the time you go to bed at night. Tie them on your hands and foreheads as a reminder and inscribe them on the doorposts of your homes and on the city gates. See, what the Lord is letting them know is that we have to have a moral and biblical under obligation to shape our children and the next generation. Now, to be clear, <laughs> the, the commandments to bind them on your hand and, and bind them on your doorposts were not to be taken literally. Please do not leave here and say the pastor told us to go home and get tattoos and repaint our house and put scripture all over the house. See, the Jews took that literally, and what they did was they put small boxes on their left hand and put scripture inside of them because they took these commandments seriously. But that's not what Moses was intending. See, what Moses was emphasizing is the importance of taking advantage of as many opportunities as possible to teach the younger generation about the love of God. And we do this by declaration, which is teaching, and we also do this by demonstration, which is showing. See, we expose them to teaching by doing devotions, by bringing our children to church, getting them involved with children's ministry and student ministries, and by reading the Bible to them, but also reading the Bible with them. But now the greatest lesson will, not, will come from our demonstration and practicing what we preach. See, children watch what we say to one another. They watch how we talk to our spouse. They watch how we talk to our neighbors. And trust me, they watch how you drive and how you respond when you're in traffic. So we have to realize that we can't immediately measure the effectiveness of our declaration and our demonstration by simply watching their face. Because it may seem like they're not, giving, they're not giving us their undivided attention because they're staring out the window, they're checking their phone, or sometimes, if your children are like my children, when I tell them to do something, they start rolling their eyes. And I say, if I did that, my mother would have removed my eyes from my socket. But I don't want anyone calling CYF on me. But what we should do is take heed to what the author Robert Fulgham said when he said, don't worry that people never listen to you. Worry that they are always watching you. Let me tell you something. Our children are watching us. They are watching how we react in a good time and in a bad time. And if you think your children aren't paying attention, let me tell you, they are. So let me be clear. The responsibility is not just with our parents. This responsibility falls on the church and the church at large. So if you don't have a child or if your children are grown and out of the house, as a Christian adult, what we say and what we do is closely dissected by the younger generation and has the potential to either draw them closer to God or push them away from God's love. And you have a spiritual maturity to help teach the next generation by getting involved in their lives. That's why we cannot ignore the sequence in which Moses was given these instructions. See, first, we must have a biblical understanding of who God is. That's what he made very clear. Then, 
and only then can we love him with all of our heart or soul and our strength. But once we love, but once love for God is part of the equation, then my relationship with man is developed. And then we move into something that's very interesting, which is love for God and man has greater expression in community. Knowing God, loving God, Loving man, and then we can love community. Sometimes we try to love community without loving God. See, when I was growing up, there was an expression that said, it takes a village to raise a child. And I grew up on that expression. But as I got older, I realized I didn't like what was going on in the village. So I didn't want my children learning what was culturally normal or biblically uh, truth from what was going on in the community. And so I had to teach them the ways of Jesus Christ and teach them about God. But that in those instructions couldn't only come from me. I had to bring them to church and surround them with the faith community because it's the faith community, not the culture that's outside the faith community, that helps our children grow. See, God didn't intend for us to be isolated Christians. Both the old and the new covenant were covenants with a community of believers. To fully experience these covenants, we must be part of that community. We must be part of the church. We have to be part of the ecclesia, or we have to be part of the gathering or the assembly. See, in our time, this means that we got to come to church. We have to be part of the body of Christ. And it's not the sole responsibility of the parents, the pastors, and teachers in the church, but it's, it's the responsibility of all believers to share the commandments of the Lord and to teach the next generations. And we see this in, in Psalm 145 and 4, where it says, One generation commends your work to another, then tell of your mighty acts. See, again, it's a biblical duty of every generation of Christians to see to it that the next generation hears about the mighty acts of God. See, God does not drop a new Bible from heaven with every generation that is born. He intends for the older generation to teach the newer generations to read, to think, to trust, to obey, and to worship. And it's important to understand that next gen is simply not moving resources from one generation to another. It's the merging of all generations so that we can become the community and the body of Christ. And we need our older generation, we need them to remain empowered, equipped, and encouraged. Because without our older generation, there is no us. Without the people who were before us, there will be no church today. See, the church will not be successful if we start reconstructing our services so that we can cater specifically to a younger generation. Such models are contrary to the word of God. And we have to create a model where all generations can live in community. That's why through our next-gen initiatives, we are not equipping only the young and the old. So that we can, I'm sorry, that's why through our next-gen initiatives, we are about equipping the young and the old so that we can equip the community of people for ministry for the next year, the year after that, all the way down for 30, 40, 50 years later. That's why next-gen is so important. So what's interesting, when we continue to read Moses' instructions to Israel, we get to verse number 20, and it highlights what happens when we take time to build relationships and teach the younger generation. 
The Bible lets us know that at some point, they are going to respond. He, the Bible says that they will ask, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statues and the rules that the Lord our God commanded you? In other words, as we build a relationship with the next generation, they'll begin to ask questions about covenant. They'll say, why does the church do communion? Why is baptisms necessary? Is it really important for us to support missionaries? They'll even ask questions like, what is the Great Commission? See, in order to impact our culture, cross-generational dialogue is needed. And there is so much that we can learn from the generation before us. There's so much we can learn from the generation that's behind us. And there's so much that we can share with the generation that we're in today. But that requires cross-cultural conversations and dialogue. See, I grew up in a generation where the expectation was to do what your parents told you to do without asking why. And by now, but now, children want to know why we are asking them to do everything. And it's not a sign of disrespect, nor is it a sign of dis, uh, disobedience. See, we live in a culture where information is easily accessible and children have access to so much information. And this has built a generation of curious children who seek an explanation of why we're asking them to do what we're asking them to do. I remember one time my mom told me that, um, boy, do it because I told you to do it. And so I did it. And it was at that time that I said, I cannot wait till I have children. I'm going to tell my child, I want you to do it because I said do it. I looked at my daughter one day and I said, I want you to do it because I said do it. She said, but why? I said, because I told you so. But why? Because you're supposed to listen to me and you have to do what I tell you to do. She said, but why? I was like, mom, something's broke. But we have a curious generation, and it's, it's, it's those times where we have an opportunity to build relationships with them. And see, the important thing is, the, it's these valuable, teachable moments that we have with our children where they're seeking explanations that enables us to share moments of covenant with them. And when we're strengthening our children, ultimately, we're strengthening their relationship with God. This is, why, this is what Moses was referring to when he used the word teach. See, the Hebrew word translated teach is the word shanan, which means to sharpen or means uh, to sharpen swords or arrows. And in our teaching our children, we're not to lecture them or just preach. However, we're to engage them in, in a reciprocal discussion about life and about them living in covenant. And during that time of talking and teaching, we're able to weave in God's commandments and sharpen their knowledge on why it's important to have a relationship with Christ. And see, it's so important for us to share the fact that we can live a satisfying life without accepting the ever-changing cultural norms. See, I tell my children, it's okay not to live together before marriage, even though the world tells you that you should try it before you buy it. It's okay to abstain from sex before marriage. It's okay to say that Jesus is the only way to salvation. And we can tell our children, it's okay to say that I disagree 
And I only disagree because I disagree and I don't hate you. And ultimately, we should teach our children to identify sin as sin. The culture may try to take sin away from our vocabulary, but God puts sin back into the picture. And we should teach our children and the next generation that it is okay to call sin, sin. See, as a church, we must do everything we can to support and strengthen the Christian family and community. It may require significant expenditures of our time, talent, and our treasure, but the reward has worldwide implications. See, we have a biblical mandate to love, treasure, evangelize, and disciple our children and those within our communities. And this change is not just for parents, but it's for the entire community of believers. No matter our age and no matter what stage of life we find ourselves in, we have a personal responsibility to help build and maintain Christ for the next generation. And this is done by simply modeling righteousness. And other times it will require some more active measures, including our personal sacrifice. And the sacrifice is worth it. Otherwise, our culture will eventually get worse. That's why it's so important to never forget that tolerance of an ever-changing non-biblical culture will inevitably lead to a culture of non-biblical churches. And we don't have to look far to see that happening in our time. Having a biblical understanding of who God is, loving him with all of our heart, our soul, and our strength, helps ensure that the church will survive the floods of cultural pressures. And trust me, the floods are coming. So what can we learn from this prophet's instructions to Israel? We learn the steps of transforming a non-biblical culture. And those steps are, be prepared to teach our children and our community that Jesus is all that we need and he wants to have a relationship with us. And we have to teach them that your love for him will grow as you spend more time with him and live in obedience to him. And finally, we have an obligation to teach these truths to the next generation so that we, the body of Christ, can transform our culture. So Rock has been ending these series with a series of questions. What does Jesus say and what does culture say when we're at the intersection of faith and culture? So these days, culture says community is only important when it can serve my needs. But Jesus says community is valuable because as you grow, you grow in relationship with the Father. And so culture says community is shaped by society. But Jesus says culture is defined by Scripture. Church family, I want to encourage you. As we move forward to the, in the next generation initiatives, let's ask the Holy Spirit, what is our part in shaping our culture? 
Because if we don't start impacting the culture, the culture is going to start impacting the church. And God calls us to a community of faith so that we can love him, love one another, and reshape our culture. Now, if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, let me assure you that he is all that you need. You will waste your time looking for happiness in the same place you lost it. If you are ready to step out on faith and trust in God and God alone for your salvation, I want to lead you in a prayer. Now let me be very clear that my prayer will not save you. The sinner's prayer will not save you. Any prayer coming from this pulpit will not save you. It's the repentance and faith behind the prayer that's in your heart that lays hold of your salvation. So if you're ready to give your life to Christ, I want to pray for you. But I also want to pray for those who are like Israel as they were standing between being released from bondage and navigating this crazy, wicked, and idolatrous culture. It's hard sometimes being a Christian because there are so many things out there that are counter to what God tells us to do. But that's why this faith community is so important because we can help build each other up, prepare one another for the world, and we can go out as an army for, the, for God so that we can change our culture. So I wanna pray for those that are ready to receive Christ and those that are struggling in this culture. So please bow your head and pray. Lord, this first prayer is for those that are ready to step out on faith and receive your salvation. Lord, for too long, some of us have kept, we have kept you out of our lives. And I know that we are sinners and that we cannot save ourselves. And no longer, Lord, will we close the door when you begin to knock. So Lord, help us to trust you as our Lord and Savior. And Jesus, we thank you so much for coming to earth. And we believe that you are the Son of God who died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead on the third day. Thank you for bearing my sins and giving me the gift of eternal life. I believe your words are true, God. So Lord, come into our hearts. Lord Jesus, bring my, be my Savior, be my Comforter, be my one and only God in Jesus' name. And Lord, I also want to pray for those who find themselves between being delivered from bondage and dealing with this culture. God, is sometimes difficult to be a Christian at work. It's sometimes difficult to be a Christian even within our own family circles because your ways are not our ways. And this culture will hate us because they hate you. But Lord, we pray for strength. Lord, we ask that you give us strength to go out and lead with both grace and truth. Lord, help us not to succumb to this culture, but give us the power from the Holy Spirit to transform this culture. Lord, that's what Moses told the people of Israel. 
And that's what your word is telling us today, to transform this culture, but it cannot be done without you. So Holy Spirit, fall fresh on us. Give us the strength that we need so that we can lead people to you. In Jesus' name, amen.